invite you to take your Bibles, if you haven't turned there already, to uh, Exodus chapter 20. And uh, today we're going to uh, talk about and unpack the Ten Commandments. You know, one of the differences between an adult and a child, and one of the differences between a mature adult and an immature adult, is understanding the connection between cause and effect. When I think of uh, things that I've watched kids do and, and think, oh, don't do that, don't do that, oh, it, it, what's, what's missing is the connection between when I do this, sometimes bad things happen. For instance, the other day I was driving around and uh, came a, across a, a looked like a um, uh, brother and sister playing baseball in the front yard. And he was throwing the, the ball to her, and she was hauling and hitting as hard as she possibly could and then run into an imaginary base and then back. And, and, and I watched her hit the ball twice. I was like, man, she's got a pretty good swing. And, and then I realized that just to the left of the pitcher was their parents' BMW. And as they're pitching the ball and she's swinging, I'm like, oh, man. And, and sure enough, she hit it nice and straight, nice and straight, nice and straight. And I would imagine that if a parent came out and said to her, hey, you, you can't hit the ball here. It might hit the car. She might say, no, 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 I always hit it straight, right? But once it goes left or right, could be a problem. There's a connection between cause and effect between a child and an adult. Uh, my, one of my sons recently um, bought a, a pogo stick from uh, the Goodwill store over here in uh, Carmel, and so he's been bouncing all over the driveway, boing, boing, boing. So he called me and said, Dad, come check out how I can do this pogo stick. So I was like, all right. So I come out. He goes, watch how I can go up the cement stairs. And he's like, boing, boing, boing. And I was like, oh, okay, whoa, 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 No, watch, I can skip him, watch. And I'm like, no, 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 don't, 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 don't. He says, Dad, come on, nothing's going to happen. And I said, yeah, nothing's ever happened to you. You've never, you've never broken anything, right? Right? So the difference between a child and adult or a immature adult and a mature adult is understanding that there are laws in life, right? Laws like gravity or um, Newton's law that, you know, an object in motion stays in motion until it hits a BMW, right? <laughs> or the tensile strength of a bone. If you fall wrong, that bone's going to give. So there's laws in life. And... You know, as you grow into adulthood, you, you got to realize that those laws are important and they are never changing. And today we're going to talk about God's moral laws. And as real as the law of gravity is, as real as Newton's laws of thermodynamics, so God's moral law is just as real. They are constantly in pain, in play, and when they are violated, it creates pain, great pain. So today we're looking at this moral foundation, and last week we saw the setup in Exodus 19 where God goes up on the mountain, and there's fire, there's smoke, there's lightning, and the whole point of that scene is God is not like you. He's different than you. That's why God's high in the mountain and they're down low. That's why there's lightning and there's peals of thunder. And we tried to establish last week that a fundamental presupposition in life a fundamental idea in, in terms of the Christian ethic is this, that God is not like us. Now, He likes us, but He's not like us. And that makes all the difference in the world. It affects how you view suffering. It affects how you view hardship. It affects how you even view the doctrine of salvation, that, that God is not like us. Exodus 19, God says to the people of Israel, all the earth is mine. In other words, He's supreme. He's sovereign over all. And the basis of his ownership of everything is the basis of him being the creator 
he then establishes the moral boundaries, the moral laws. You see, this is not just a series of moral instructions. This is the way that the Creator has designed life. Step outside of this moral boundary, and you're in a no-man's land. The devil would say to you, oh, there's pleasure out here. There's, you, this, this is where fun really exists. And God, as the Creator, says, hey, you don't want to go there. It's not good for you. And today we're going to try and understand this, this sweeping implications of God's <clears throat> supremacy and sovereignty and how that relates to the matter of morals and this moral ethic. Now, today we're going to talk about the law. And before we get into the law, I need to help you understand the the bigger picture and kind of the role and the limits of the law. Because the law, you may read, maybe you've done a Bible reading plan and you, you come to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you're like, I know this is God's word, but what, right? And you just, you're reading and you're like, what in the world? And wool and flax and all sorts of stuff mingled together and different uh, sacrifices. So how do we understand the law? It's important for you to understand it so that you can know how to read the Bible and apply it. The other thing, too, is that over my um, time as a pastor, I've seen the law terribly used. Uh, I've seen it used to justify things, to try and put people in a really tight box. And so it, it's important for you to understand this word, Law and what it means. So let me let me give you just some uh, some instruction on this before we get into the Ten Commandments. I actually have seven things that I want to tell you about the law this morning. Here's the first one, and that is this: that the word and concept of law can be used in different ways in the Bible. So sometimes you'll notice in your Bible it's a capital L law. Sometimes it's a small L law. And that's because, frankly, in in the Greek language, there's really no distinguishing mark as to whether it should be capital or not capital. Sometimes, uh, like the Apostle Paul uses the word law to refer to basic uh, moral codes of right and wrong. So he talks like in Romans 2 that the Gentiles, when they obey, they obey a law, even though they don't know what the law is. Um, So it's sort of inner compass in terms of things that are right, things that are wrong. So that could be, in a sense, a law. As well, the word law could refer specifically to the Ten Commandments. Um, Jesus, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, when he talks about um, the commands of God, when he says, you've heard that it was said or that it was written, uh, he's quoting the, the, the Ten Commandments. And so that could be law as well. Another use of the word law could be for all of the particular laws that you find in uh, books like Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus. So the word law has a, a broad range of meaning. Jesus even used that word when he said that um, he had come to fulfill the law and talked about the law and the prophets. So sometimes it can be a term that means um, the entire uh, corpus of the Bible and its commands. Sometimes it can be just the Ten Commandments. And sometimes it can just even mean, in general, this sense of, of right and wrong. Here's the second thing. And that is that the Ten Commandments were intended to be basic moral principles. So you need to look at the Ten Commandments through this lens. You need to see them more like the Constitution than you would case law. You need to see them more like core values than individual statutes. See, what what God is doing here is establishing the basic principles upon which the moral code of life will be based. He does this by issuing ten commands. Actually, in chapter 20, you'll, you'll see that he says that God said these words. So he doesn't even, the Bible doesn't even use the word commands in reference to these ten commandments. Later on, 
when it comes to not using his name in vain, he'll say, if you, if you violate my commandments, that, that's when the word command is used. But in regards to the Ten Commandments, they're more like core values. These are values expressed through individual commands. And then all of the rest of the law throughout the rest of the Old Testament will flow from these ten moral principles, these, these ten moral guidelines. We tend to think of law as um, individual um, statutes. So that's why there's all sorts of laws that are constantly being written. That's why there's lawyers, that's why there's people in government office, because there, there's always this possibility that somebody could not um, fully obey and it wouldn't be written down and therefore there would be a loophole and they couldn't be held accountable for a law that isn't written. That's not how the Ten Commandments are. Ten Commandments are designed to be um, perpetually binding moral commands. Third, the specific regulations in the law the rest of the Bible, expands and applies the Ten Commandments. So specifically, in Exodus chapters 21 to 23, you're going to see some very specific instructions, some very specific regulations, and these were given in order for them to know when God says, you shall not steal, here's what he means. That boundary marker between you and your neighbor, if you move that, that's stealing. When you when you sell goods and you weigh your scales and it's unfair, that's stealing. When you have a stranger who lives among you and you take their um, garment and you hold it for too long as a pledge, that's stealing. And so what the Bible does is it, it applies the Ten Commandments through these very specific regulations and they were meant to be illustrative of what the Ten Commandments are all about. Number four. The Old Testament law is typically divided up into moral, civil, and ceremonial commands. So, historically, interpreters would look at the law through one of three lenses. Either the moral law, which is primarily the Ten Commandments, and those, I believe, uh, transcend time and culture, so these commands are perpetually binding. Then you have civil commands, and those relate to um, Israel's governance as a nation, what kind of taxes they should pay, uh, the way in which the um, nation should be organized. Um, and then you also have ceremonial commands that relate to things like uncleanness, um, relates to worship, the things that related to how Israel was to approach God. And so there's three different divisions of that law, moral, civil, and ceremonial. And that's important because when you go into the New Testament, you see that one of the early issues that the church had to deal with was how much of this law is still relevant one of the early issues that they had to deal with is, are we still um, to command our people that they're to observe those dietary restrictions? And you have Peter and the coming down of that sheet, and Jesus says, kill and eat. So what's going on here? And so what happens is that in the context of the church age, that the civil and ceremonial laws fundamentally change, but the moral law doesn't. The moral law is not only rooted in the Ten Commandments, it's also rooted candidly in the creation of the world there are particular commands even given to adam and eve that relate to the ten commandments but we don't have time to unpack that and look at that fully today number four or number five rather excuse me jesus targeted the heart behind the law so jesus's goal when he looks at the law is to actually get below the surface not just to talk about the ten commandments or to talk about the specific requirements of the law but actually get to the heart and that wasn't just jesus's intentions that was the intention of god from the very beginning in fact in jeremiah 32 God talks about a day coming when they would have a new heart. And the beauty of that new heart and that new covenant would be that the law of God would be written on their hearts. 
that they would know what to do, that they wouldn't have to have external laws always dictating what was right and what was wrong, but there would be this new level of obedience that would come out of the heart. And so when Jesus talks about issues like like murder or adultery or retaliation, he, he gets to the heart of the matter because he knows what we know, and that is that we tend to emphasize our external actions at the neglect of what's really going on inside the heart. And Jesus goes after the heart and says, look, true obedience isn't just what you do on the outside, it's who you are on the inside. So this idea of the law reaching the heart and coming out of the heart is an important New Testament dynamic. Number six, the law was never designed to save, but to identify the character of God and lead us to Christ. So the law's goal is for it to be heavy and weighty and overwhelming. Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7 that the law is good. Why is the law good? Because it makes God's character clear and plain, and it makes our sin clear and plain. It makes us see who we really are. It is a moral x-ray. It is designed to break us, to help us to realize I can't do this on my own, and then to help us run to Christ so that by the redemption offered to us in Jesus and by the indwelling power of the Spirit, we can actually keep His law. So when you, if you ever read the law and you're just overwhelmed, you're just like, oh my word, this is like a moral fire hose. Exactly. That's the point. God wanted his people to know his holiness and the fact that he could, that nobody could ever measure up. Number seven, and finally, and that is this, that true obedience is rooted in the Ten Commandments, but it's lived out by the Spirit. This is really important for us in the New Testament age, in that Christ fulfilled the law, paid the atonement for our sins, and therefore, in Conversion, when somebody receives Christ as their Savior, God considers them as though they've perfectly obeyed the law. He attributes to you the righteousness that Christ achieved, and He takes all of your violations of the law and gives it to Christ. That's what it means to be converted. That's what it means to be saved. And that's, by the way, the difference between heaven and hell, between a relationship with God and being His enemy. But on top of that, God then sends His Spirit, the personal presence of Christ in the heart and life of every believer. And the effect of this is unbelievable. It is in that by virtue of the presence of the Spirit, you now hear the Ten Commandments, and by the Spirit you are able to live them out in ways that you would have never been able to live them out prior to being indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. It means now that you have an inner guide, this 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 direction that comes by God Himself to help you know how to apply the the Word, the Ten Commandments, and know how to then live and walk in them. Which is why Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now many of us would rather have a rule. Obey these ten rules and you'll not indulge in the sinful desires of the flesh. The problem is, if you have ten rules, and it's a guarantee, if you keep these rules, then you're going to be good. Then when you kept these rules, guess what? You'd be full of pride and sin and wouldn't be able to make it anyways. And so the reality is, is you need the presence of the Spirit to be able to walk by the Spirit because life is filled with so many nuances, so many challenges, and our hearts are so deceptive that when we think we have actually obeyed, we end up violating the very heart of the command in the first place. So, the law is good, but the Spirit helps us and empowers us in fulfilling it. 
So 1 Timothy 1.8 says, The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And how do you lawfully use the law? You lawfully use the law by letting it do what it's designed to do. It's designed to reveal both the character of God and designed to reveal our hearts. And so understanding the law helps us to know God, but it also helps us to know ourselves. So, with that as the background, the backdrop, let's dig into the Ten Commandments. Now, here's the challenge of the Ten Commandments. I would suspect that nobody is going to walk out of here today with this thought. Wow, that was really good. I had no idea lying was wrong. I had no idea. It's like so, so helpful, Mark. Thank you. I just, I was, I, I don't know how, I just grew up in a home and I was like, seriously, I didn't know. No big deal. No one's going to leave today like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. So what I want to do, instead of talking about what exactly does this mean, I want to try and get below the surface at the principles that are undergirding these Ten Commands and help you understand what they mean. And for that matter, then also that maybe by the Spirit today, you would figure out how this old ten words, how these old ten words are to be lived out in your life. So here's the first one. The first command is no other gods. If you look at Exodus 20, it begins, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, God repeats this. Why does he repeat this? Well, because this is the basis of his relationship with Israel. It's not just that he's giving them commands, it's that he rescued them. And in the ancient Near East, when you were rescued, your rescuer, in in regards to the terms of your new life, would offer a treaty or a covenant. It was called a a suzerain-vassal treaty. It's the name after the people group that kind of developed this. If you were the person who delivered, you would deliver to the people who you rescued a treaty and say, this is how your life's going to look like. I'm your deliverer, I've rescued you. And as a result, these are the prescribed behaviors that I want you to maintain in light of your deliverance. So that's why verse 2 is there. Verse 3 then says, you shall have no other gods before me. You need to know that this command is not just first in order, it is first in essence. Meaning that all of the rest of the commands are going to flow from this single command of no other gods. Trace every command back or trace every sin back and eventually you'll come back to the place of a competition between who's really going to be God. And the unique thing that God says here is this. That even though you live in a polytheistic world, even though there are the, 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 the nations around you think that there are all kinds of gods... The reality is there aren't all sorts of gods. I am the one God, and there is no other. So what's unique about what God claims here is that he claims that there are no other gods, that he is exclusively the creator of the universe. And as a result, he demands and requires exclusive allegiance. And that makes sense. If you're the only God, then to worship anything else would not only be silly and futile, it would actually be treasonous. If you're the creator and you own everything and everything owes its existence to you, then for someone to prescribe that something else created you or for someone else to follow another so-called God, when you're the creator, hmm, this would violate the very essence of what God has done in the world. So, Since God is the creator of the universe, and since everything exists for his glory, you need to know that God's exclusive claim of worship is not 
a symptom of a megalomaniac complex. But rather, if there's nothing in the universe more glorious than God, if there's nothing more attractive, more lovely, and if He really is the only God and there is no other, then it is a gracious and kind thing that God says, don't worship anything else because there are no other gods before me. So the essence of this command is that there is to be nothing that competes with God for allegiance, nothing that competes with Him for loyalty, Nothing that competes with him for obedience and nothing that competes with him for worship. So the question is, so how's that going? You see, the reality is if you don't serve God and God alone, you don't serve God at all. John Calvin said that the heart, the human heart, is a massive idol factory. That we constantly have this battle going on within our soul as to who we will worship. Because we were designed to worship. We are, we are phenomenal worshipers. The problem is, is that we worship things other than God. So the violation of this command, no other gods, is the, the essence of what sin really is. Every time that we go outside of God's moral boundaries, we're in effect saying, I don't care what you say, I'm going to be my own God. At the end of the day, moral or immoral activity, things outside of God's prescribed box, is our subtle little way of saying, I'm going to be my own God. So no other gods before me. Number two, the command here is no idols. Verses 4 through 6 extend the application of God's singular worth by requiring that there was to be no human-made representation of God. So you're not only to have no other gods before Him, but you, you're commanded here not to make idols. Look at verse 4. The prohibition involved a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that's in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So they're not to take things that they can see, in the created world, make an image of them, bow down to them, and act as though those things are their gods. Now what's interesting is surely in the human mind they would know that if I've made this with my own hands and I've created it and it's made in the image of something that's on earth, surely this isn't my God. So what's the attraction with idols? The attraction with idols is that rather than men and women being content with the revelation that God gives them through the Word or through the spoken Word in the case of the Old Testament, instead of being content with the way that God has revealed Himself, instead human beings want to create their own little images in order so that they can feel safe. So that there can be a sense of security. A a, a God that I can manage. So the reason that human beings create idols is for our own pleasure, for our own safety, for our own security. You'll you'll see this later on in, um, I think it's Exodus 32, with the golden calf. Moses is gone for a number of days. The people start to panic. They need a God. God isn't speaking to them anymore. He's up on the mountain. And so therefore they create this golden calf and they bow down to it. Surely they know this thing that they made, it, it, it didn't deliver them from Egypt, but they're bowing down to it. Why? Because they need a God. They need something they can worship. They need something they can feel safe with they need something that they can manage and that's the problem with idols 
is we pick them because we think that they will serve us. And the problem is we end up serving them. The initial thought is, I want this thing because of what it gives me. And then the heart gets hooked. And before you know it, these idols begin controlling us. By the way, you know you have an idol when that thing in your life is removed and you feel like your life is over. If your life exists in order so that you can enjoy, embrace, use, participate in something, and when that thing is taken away, you feel like, you know what, it's over. That. When that becomes that ultimate, that's when you know that's an idol. Idolatry is simply creating something to which you would give your affection because God just isn't enough. It can be anything. It can be your job. It can be money. It can be a relationship. It can be sex. It can be a possession. Something that gives you this sense of, I'm powerful. I'm a human. And the reality is that thing feeds something within your soul, an area of your soul that was only intended for God to feed that. Ezekiel 14 tells us that idols don't have to be on the outside. They can be on the inside. Idols of the heart. Third, so no other gods, no no idols. Third, do not misuse the name. So the name of God is directly linked to his character, to the essence of who he is. And as, as a result of Israel having that name, there was authority attached to it. So what God is cautioning against here is the abuse of that name and certainly things like swearing, cursing, blasphemy, using God's name flippantly. All of those things are, are certainly in mind. But also what he has in mind are people trying to use God's name as a emblem of credibility. So they make a promise and then they throw God's name in. Or they, they, they use the worship of God in a way that becomes uh, self-advancing. In other words, what's in mind here is that God's name or the worship of God was not intended to be used for self-worship. can't use God for you. That's the point. You can't use His name to validate you, to, to, to make people believe you, to give you credibility. You, you can't, God doesn't exist in the world to make you great. You exist in the world to make His name great. And His, His name is connected to His greatness. So don't misuse His name for self-centered purposes. That's the point. Fourth, keep the Sabbath holy. You know, what's interesting is this command is actually rooted in the Genesis account where God, as the creator, has a rhythm to how he creates. He creates six days, and on the seventh day, here's the creator God who rests. He intentionally stops. So then Exodus 20 also gives the same command. And then, interestingly enough, verse 11 links it all the way back to creation. Look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why is that in the Bible? Because God knows you. He knows what will happen. You start getting kids. 
You're like, awesome, man. I'm going to sit in the chair on Sunday and let my kids do all the work, right? you got a servant. I'm not working, just making everybody else work, right? And so God says, no, no, no. I don't care if it's your son, if it's your daughter, if it's your servant, if it's your animal, or if you're, it's the alien. Nobody is to work. Why? Verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what's the big deal about the Sabbath? The big deal is this. Is that as human beings, God has created within us physically a limitation that we are not able to work infinitely. Just think of it. It's just, sometimes it just makes me laugh that a third of everything that we do every 24 hours is lay unconscious on our backs, on our sides, on our stomachs, drooling and looking like an absolute mess, doing absolutely nothing. I mean, if you're an angel looking at the created order and you don't need rest, no doubt they look and go, look at these silly, bad breath breathing human beings as they're laying unconscious in their beds and a third of your day at least about a third of your day hopefully not too much more hopefully not too much less is spent in a virtually comatose state and god has designed you like that and you can't go without that very long without getting loopy right or just completely worn out why does god done that you know why because he knows the human heart And that is this, if we didn't have limitations, we would work and 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 and we would never stop. We would grab all of our sense of identity from what we do, from the production that we are involved in. And there's something really good about work. I love to work. In fact, a couple years ago we were talking about our various uh, personalities and our talents and I told my staff that like like my favorite thing on my day off is when my wife gives me like a list, like 15 things. If you just do these things, like 15 of them, you know, all these little fix-it jobs, I'm like, yes, a honey-do list. I love just hitting those and big check off that list, right? And get done at the end of the day, fall in the bed, knowing I have done something with my life today, right? You might think that's crazy. It is, but I love it, right? And the the reality is, if I could work infinitely, I would would work, I'd read, I'd write, I'd think, I'd, 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 I'd do all of these things and I would never stop. And sometimes... The reality is, our humanity, we press and press and press, and sleep is a reminder that we are not, in, we are not ultimate. So, so, I mean, get this. Sleep is worship. Yes! <laughs> yes! So go take a nap today. Tell your husband or wife or your friend, hey, for the glory of God, I'm going to bed, right? So you just... You just go, man, and go sleep and sleep. And sometimes some of the most most spiritual thing in the world that you can do is say, look, I can't work anymore. i got to go to bed. Because you're believing by faith that tomorrow morning you're going to have the grace and energy that you don't have right now. So what is Sabbath? Sabbath, unlike the physical rest, is supposed to be a regular intentional ceasing from work for the purpose of being reminded why you're really here on the earth. So it was supposed to be that cell phones and emails were supposed to help us make life simpler and less complex. Did that work real well? I don't think so. The reality is, if you have your phone with you, your iPad with you, your your, uh, piece of technology, you're tweeting, you're checking Facebook, you're doing work, sometimes even in the service, and I see you, by the way. Um, I, I look when you tweet, look... 10.52 you tweeted? I don't know about that. So anyway, so um, 
the reality is you can just work, 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 work. And this would be, at some point in time, according to the Bible, we need to take a moment and say, you know what? I need to stop. Because this is becoming too much a part of my identity. This is becoming who I am. Who I am really is my relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that you can't go out to eat on a Sunday afternoon. I'm saying you can't go to your kid's soccer games. I'm not saying you've got to turn the TV off, shut your phones down, you know, things like that. I'm not saying any of that. But what I am saying is this, is look, one day a week, something needs to be different about this day. Something needs to be different where you're reminded, you know what, I don't exist for my job. I don't even exist for my family. At the end of the day, all these things are good. They're all a part of the worship order. But at the end of the day, what I really am is about me and my relationship with God. So something about this day needs to be different to facilitate that. In the New Testament, Jesus changes it a bit. The New Testament authors change it a bit. They move from Sabbath day, seventh day, to first day of the week. It's changed from Sabbath to Lord's Day. Same idea. That we're to be reminded that we live not for the pace of production, but we live for relationship with our Creator. Number five, honor your father and mother. The word honor is the same word, listen to me, it's the same word that's used for the glory of God. In other words, the same sort of respect and honor that you're to give the Lord is to be given on earth to mom and dad, which means that a person who has an honor problem with mom and dad actually has a God problem. What does honoring look like? Well, as children, it means that you obey your parents. As adults, it means that you respect your parents. It means that as they age, you take care of your parents. So honoring is a a lifetime pursuit, and as well, it also means that you take the spiritual heritage that you've been given, even if it was just a small little seed of spirituality, or maybe there wasn't anything that was there, it means that you take this spirituality and you, you grow it and you pass it on to the next generation. I long for the day when I'll be old and have children, grandchildren. I mean, I can hardly even believe that that's even possible, but someday, and and to, to think that all of them, oh, God, I hope so, or most of them would have carried the mantle of Christianity from my lifetime into theirs and from the, my children into their children. That is a gift that is so precious, so you honor your mom and dad by being righteous and godly. Look, Just don't buy the grandfather clock for their 50th. Just be godly for the rest of your life, right? Just be righteous. That's what it means to honor mom and dad. Number six, no murder. The sixth command prohibits violence towards another human being. On a broader scale, it relates to the preservation of life. In Genesis 9, God told Noah that if a human being was killed by another human being, that their life should be taken because there's something sacred and precious about the human being who's made in the image of God. Life is a gift, and it's a gift that is to be preserved. So this, this isn't a instruction regarding passivism, because clearly there are moments in the Bible when God gives instruction in regards to justice for the appropriate killing of others, Rather, what is addressed here is the self-focused, hate-filled, unauthorized killing of another human being. So the image of God is so sacred in others and in ourselves 
that to violate that image by taking the image bearer's life is to move outside the moral boundaries of God's prescribed code for life. Jesus then gets to the heart of it and says, you know where murder really begins? It begins with hatred. And so he targets not only the active killing, but also the internal desire for killing. Number seven, no adultery. We're going to spend a little time here. God is the creator of everything, including human sexuality. And therefore, he defines the boundaries of sexuality and morality. He establishes here, at the bare minimum, that sexual activity outside of a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman is fundamentally immoral. So he establishes this boundary. Now, why would God establish that boundary? Our culture would say, no, 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 it's not a big deal. It's just... Just sexual activity. What's, it's just our bodies. What's the big deal? Why does God prescribe this boundary? Let me explain to you why. This is really important, not only if you're married, but also if you're not. This will help you, I think, understand the lie of the enemy when temptations come, where the enemy says, come on, live outside the boundary. It's fun over here. Let me help you understand why God prescribes this boundary. It isn't arbitrary. It's a part of the created order, and it is very, very important. See, God designed marriage between a man and a woman to be covenantal and to be an all-encompassing relationship. Sometimes the Bible calls this all-encompassing relationship a one-flesh union. That language, one flesh, is a Bible attempt to capture the depths of the interweaving of what happens between a man and a woman in every area of their life. That they're no longer two, but they're one. And God's design in this covenantal marriage is that there's this relationship between a husband and wife, a relationship that's based upon mutual trust and promise-keeping and mutual acceptance. It is that human beings were fundamentally insecure, and and here comes somebody else who says, I'm going to love you just the way that you are, and you're going to love me just the way that I am. And despite the fact that we're going to grow old together and our, 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 you're going to know all my weaknesses, you're going to see how foolish I am, we're going to change physically together over the years, and you're going to go through, and yet through all of this, we're going to stay together and we're going to love one another, not because it's, because it's convenient or because it's easy, but because there's something beautiful, something God blessed about mutual acceptance that, that, that spans the decades. What we're talking about here is a connection to another human being that is so deeply spiritual. You could think of it, like back to the Garden of Naked, like emotional nakedness. In fact, it is the closest picture that we have to God's relationship to His church. So there's something unique, something spiritual, something emotional, something relational, and something physical that is at the depth of human relationships that is comparable to no other relationship on the planet. And as a result, in this covenantal relationship, when there is that level of acceptance and that level of trust, sexuality becomes like a sacrament. It it takes the reality of this physical moment and it draws the heartstrings tighter and closer and more intimate. And in this way, sexuality actually affirms and accentuates covenant love. 
Therefore, sex, rightly understood, is not just physical. This is what our world will tell you. It's just physical. No, it isn't. It is metaphysical. Meaning, it is so far beyond. It is the connection of a being of a man to a being to a woman. Which is why, when the Apostle Paul addresses the church at Corinth, and they have this crazy idea that they could just go to the temple of Diana and have sex with a prostitute in the worship, and it's not a big deal, Paul says, what are you, crazy? That's my interpretation. What are you, crazy? He says, you're one body with the Lord, and when you go, you're taking the Lord into that thing. You're taking the Lord into that relationship. And then Paul says this. He says, flee every, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral sins against his own body. What is he saying? He's saying that there's something different about sexuality and something different about sexual sin. Central to the beauty and the power of sexuality is the soul connection. And it is only, listen to me, it is only in covenant marriage between a man and a woman that that sex, soul, otherness dynamic works and works well. Sexual activity outside of a marriage always, I don't care what expression it is, always involves a self-focus. It temporarily offers you pleasure, but at the cost of something, listen, deep within your soul. There is something uniquely divine about sexuality, something that relates to something deep within you. Therefore, all sexual activity outside of a God-ordained marriage is a violation of God's heart because it's only in this covenantal relationship that sex will help your soul instead of feeling like you've given part of your being away. Listen, this is what happens. God describes and prescribes the boundaries because outside of the boundaries, it's not only not right, listen to me, it's not safe for your soul. I was reading an article over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal of some a woman who's an Indian, and she is concerned about the sexual crimes that are happening in her um, country. And her solution, to shockingly so, is that the problem with Indian culture is that it's too prudish and too conservative. And we would solve all these sexual assaults if we could just open up the floodgates and do away with any sense of morals, because that would be the solution. And I want to think, did that ever work historically? <laughs> It's never going to work. Absolutely not. That's not the solution. The solution is instead to understand the beautiful reality of what the Creator has designed and why He's designed it that way. And while the enemy would say, come outside here, it's pleasure, it's fun, it's just the body. No, it's not. You end up selling a part of your soul. Therefore, sex is only safe when it's in the context of covenantal love between a husband and wife. Number eight. Got to move quickly. No stealing. The Eighth Commandment is designed to protect people from the selfish actions of others. Beyond just not taking what doesn't belong to you, the command is also applied to don't destroy other people's property. I mean, it's the reason you break somebody's fence, they got to pay to fix the fence, and so that's, in effect, taking money from them because they've stolen it. That's what I've said to my kids. They put a hole in the drywall. I'm like, look, now i got to pay for that, right? 
you're stealing from me. Stop stealing from me, right? So I stop making holes in my drywall because I'm mean, me, making me money. I have to give money away because of your elbows. So stop it, right? So uh, that's a sidebar. But anyway, so fair, fair measurements. I mean, you have business. You got If you're not fair, you're you're stealing. Not moving landmarks, appropriate interest. These are all things. And by the way, and these are things that were designed to particularly protect the poor, widows, and aliens. Our friends in the neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic just told me gut-wrenching stories of just how people take advantage of of poor people because they can't afford a lawyer. It's just something so wrong with that. And the Bible says, that's stealing. Number nine, no lying. This is obviously, it prohibits not telling the truth. And in the context, it relates very much to in court proceedings or things of that sort. But it extends far beyond that. And a culture breaks down when people don't know if they can trust one another and what you say. If everything has to be all written down in a very specific contract with every I dot and every T crossed, it creates a very negative adversarial culture. No lying. Whether it's social or commercial or relational, truth is important. And finally, number 10, which is no coveting. The word covet means to crave or desire. It's as close to the internal as we get in the 10 words. But it means in particular that no coveting what your neighbor has that you would want it at their neglect. So what this is at the end of the day is the violation of the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. What God is prohibiting here is the self-centeredness of looking at what your neighbor has and craving it for yourself at their neglect. I should have that. They shouldn't. It's that sort of attitude. It's envisioning your gain at their loss and dreaming about it. And God wants us to be content and not turn on one another in our sinful desires to get ahead. No coveting. So, The Ten Commandments, none of this is new, but we certainly need to review this, don't we? Because we live in a world and culture that would tell you that, that look, morals, morals are whatever you think it is. What's right for me might not be right for you. And while that's true at one level, my family preferences, our convictions, they might work for me, it might not work for you. But eventually we have to get to a moral floor. If I walk into the gas station and say, 385, you know what, that kind of means 350 to me today, right? The gas station then is going to go, hey, 380, whatever you want. 383 is what it is, man. Three, now, to me, 383 means 353. That doesn't, eventually, you reach a point where there has to be an irreducible minimum, and the Ten Commandments are that. At the end of the day, God is the one who prescribes behaviors and morals because he's God. So that leaves us in a position that we have to think about these Ten Commandments and be humbled in our inability to keep God's law. I hope as you hear the ten words today that you're reminded, you know what, I can't do this on my own. This is impossible. To then also be reminded that God calls us to run to Christ for atonement for our sin because there's only hope in Him that we could ever do anything right. And even if you violated every single one of these commands every single day, your only hope is Christ. And finally, to renew our commitment to live by the commands given to us for our Creator because they are not only right, but they're also for our good. You see, life outside of these commands, College Park, life outside these commands is not only sinful. Listen to me. It's not safe. 
And so while the enemy would tell you, come outside here, come out the boundary, this is where real living is. Real life exists outside of these morals. I would tell you, that is a lie, that is not true. And the creator of the universe who knows you better than anyone else and knows everything about this universe, who knows the cause and effects of everything, has defined the moral boundaries and it's only safe inside those. So don't you dare go outside because it's not safe out there. We're called to be like him And that's the only place where it's really safe. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace, your help to be able to apply your word in our lives today. We live in a world and culture that would beg us to go outside of the boundaries. And the world, the flesh, and the devil collude to invite us to areas that are not safe. And today I pray that there would be a renewed commitment within our hearts that we would be the kind of people, you helping us, who would see your commands as what they are, good and righteous and safe. This is the way to live. This is real living. And so, Lord, for brothers and sisters today who face temptations so strong, I pray you'd give them grace to fight. For children in this church and teenagers, single adults, unmarried I pray, Lord, that the framework of our culture and the mentality of our world would not have its imprint on their lives, but instead that this word, this text, this scripture, would be emblazoned on their soul so they could know what it means to really live. Lord, give us grace to be obedient people. We need your help. We can't do this on our own. We thank you that you, Jesus, you were the ultimate law keeper so you could be the ultimate deliverer. What a savior you are. Thank you. We love you. And thank you that these commandments, they make us glad because of you. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. There'll be some folks up here afterwards for prayer. If there's a need in your life, they'd love to pray with you today, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.